Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Katherine Oliver. Across the country, black Americans are more likely than white Americans to die at nearly every stage of life. Experts cite a variety of factors contribute to this disparity, including pre-existing conditions and lack of access to trusted health care providers. Black patients have better health outcomes when treated by black doctors, but the devastating economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic threatens to worsen existing disparities, potentially preventing current black medical students burdened with medical school debt from completing their degrees. Last fall, Bloomberg Philanthropies announced a $100 million gift to the four historically black medical schools in the U.S. Meharry Medical College, Howard University College of Medicine, Morehouse School of Medicine, and Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science. This gift will help ease the debt burden of medical students currently enrolled and receiving financial aid in order to help increase the number of black doctors in the U.S. This gift is the first investment of Bloomberg Philanthropy's Greenwood Initiative, an effort to increase intergenerational black wealth and address systemic underinvestment in black communities. In this episode, recorded in December, Garnisha Isidiaro, who leads the Greenwood Initiative at Bloomberg Philanthropies, sits down with Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, President and Dean of Morehouse School of Medicine, and Dr. James Hildreth, President and CEO of Meharry Medical College. They discuss what makes their students and school communities so special, the underlying factors contributing to health disparities in black communities, and how Bloomberg Philanthropy's gift will enable students to choose what and where they practice medicine based on passion, not on a paycheck. This is the second episode in a two-part series around this investment. It is a pleasure to be joined today by Dr. James Hildreth of Meharry Medical College and Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice of Morehouse School of Medicine. We are now recording this episode a few months after announcing the $100 million investment from Bloomberg Philanthropies to help increase the Black doctors in the U.S. by significantly reducing the debt burden of medical students. Dr. Hildreth and Dr. Rice, can you both share with us how this gift will help impact your students? First of all, thank you, and I'm happy to participate in this podcast. You know, Garnisha, this gift could not have come at a more significant time. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're seeing Black and brown people die at a rate three times that of white people based on this pandemic. So as an institution, it's even more clear to us how important it is for us to have this mission that aligns with creating health equity. Because we know that part of the challenge of why we are seeing our people die at a significant rate is because of the chronicity of health disparities in this country. We also know that our students will be those doctors that disproportionately care for those people who are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. So what we do as an institution to educate and train this next generation is even more significant now. So this gift from Bloomberg Philanthropies says to our students that we see you, we value you, we know that you're gonna make a difference in all communities. 
Thank you for that reflection. Dr. Hildreth, I wonder if you have anything to add to that as well as really focusing in on the potential impact of this gift to your institution. So first, I agree completely. Clearly for us who have students graduating really with a debt that's almost $100,000 higher than the national average, this is going to give them agency, the ability to continue to make the choice of primary care, which most of our students do. And that's becoming increasingly challenging if you graduate from medical school owing more than $300,000. So I think that for that reason, and because these students will be committed to taking care of those who need them the most, uh, as Dr. Rice said, the timing of the gift could not be more appropriate for the time that we're living through. And I'm just really grateful to Bloomberg Philanthropies for acknowledging the value of our students and our institutions in this way. I think that's very significant. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to partner with you both as well as the other two schools. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit more about what you think makes your individual schools so distinct and special as we think they are. <laughs> we'll let the oldest school go first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm the senior member of the four of us leaders, and I acknowledge that. I claim it. I've earned every gray hair, those that are left. <laughs> but Meharry is a very old institution. We've been around since 1876. And we were really founded as a place where African-Americans could come and learn medicine and, and healthcare and take care of each other and their communities. So we embrace that. We think that we attract people, staff, students, faculty who embrace our mission. And we have no intention of ever changing that. So I think to have the first gift of this kind, it's the largest gift in our history, be one focused on our students, to me, makes me very happy because we think that our students are very special. I think all the students at our four schools are special because they're focused on their communities, they're focused on doing good. So about 100 plus years later, uh, <laughs> in 1975, Morehouse School of Medicine was founded. And so we're only 46 years old. Well, we were founded very much on the same principles as Mary to diversify the healthcare workforce, work to improve access for underrepresented persons, and to work toward the elimination of health disparities. So what it tells you between that period of time, not much had changed that you needed to have another historically Black medical school. At the time in 1975, when we were founded, there was, for every white physician, about 795 white persons. For every Black physician, there was about 13,000 Black patients. And why do I make that distinction? Because we were still very segregated back then. So imagine what that felt like. So thank goodness the legislators led by and pushed by a group of Black doctors agreed to start a new medical school. And we have really lived into that legacy. We know that 60% of our kids will graduate practicing primary care and greater than 65 to 70% will practice in rural and underserved communities. And 85% of our population will be those underrepresented in medicine and Black. And we have less than a 2% attrition rate. So we are extremely proud of the fact that our students do so well. And what we say they do is they shift the curve 
They don't just shift a curve on their performance. They shift a curve on the expectations of what they deliver to the community. They have significant impact. And what we know is that they're going to choose primary care or critical core specialties even more. I guarantee you. As the Black community has suffered the highest death rate in this pandemic and, and as a result of COVID-19, you all are very much at the center of that conversation and that dialogue. Can you share with us what you believe are the underlying factors that are contributing to health inequity that we're seeing now and, and even before the pandemic began? Ganesha, I think it's obvious to everyone, the pandemic simply shone a bright light on a problem that's existed for decades. The obesity, the heart disease, the high blood pressure, the asthma, those things have beset our communities for a long time. And unfortunately, people who get COVID-19, having those conditions leads to worse outcomes. So the pandemic has simply brought into focus a problem that our institutions have been focused on for a really long time. And I think that's why having a gift of this kind to train more people who will be focused on those issues is very important. But I can't get away from the fact that central to all of this is structural racism in our country that exists in almost every domain of our lives, health, education, you name it. And to me, that's one of the things that this country has to grapple with if we're ever going to have uh, true equity in health and in other places. So I think that having a convergence of a racial justice struggle in the middle of a pandemic that's devastating Black communities brings into highlight for a lot of people why our institutions are so important. And we embrace that. I mean, it's, it's why we exist. The thing that I would add to that is that we don't want to ever forget that race is not the risk factor here, right? The fact that you are Black or you are Latinx is not the risk factor. The risk factors are brought on about the social determinants and the political determinants. And I would like to read you a statement from Daniel Dawes, who wrote about the political determinants of health. And he heads our Satcher Health Leadership Institute. And he says it best when he observes that the U.S. has struggled to apply the doctrines of equal protection and general welfare to its laws and policies for more than 225 years. And as a result, implicit biases are so baked into our political system that even in the most dire health emergencies, our actions tend to help or favor some groups over others. Consider how policy decisions have differentially affected those experiencing opioid addiction, mental illness, or HIV, for example. And so when you first started to hear the conversations about COVID, people initially wanted to label it, oh, this is a black and brown disease. No, this wasn't a black and brown disease. This virus did not discriminate. But if you lived in a multi-generational home, or you were in a congregate setting that didn't allow for you to socially distance, or if you are one of those essential workers, let's talk about the non-health essential workers who keep our economy rolling every day. They're the people who drive our buses, deliver our packages, who ensure that our trash is picked up, deliver our groceries, ring us up at the grocery store, et cetera. 
those persons tend to be more brown and black, and they could not stay home and do their job from home because they know that if that business opened up, they had to be there in order to keep food on the table for their family. So they could not watch their distance. They could hygiene, they could wear their mask, but that was not enough. And then when the opportunity availed itself, we did not afford those individuals the opportunity to adequate testing and then acknowledgement that they needed testing and then the care delivery. And that's those systemic challenges that we have consistently seen that Dr. Hildred referred to, structural barriers secondary to racism. To the point that Dr. Rice made, when it became known that the group or groups most impacted by the virus were brown and black, it is my perception that some political leaders felt that they didn't have to focus on this as they otherwise might have. Imagine you are a student at Morehouse School of Medicine or Meharry or Charles Drew and Howard, and you know that Black doctors disproportionately take care of Black and Brown patients. You know that we already have to contend with taking care of those patients who have one and two chronic diseases. You know that COVID-19 is a disease of contact. That's how you get it. So imagine the pressure and the stress that our students are feeling because they see persons in the community who are really caring for these patients. And they think, another burden for me. So when I get back to why this gift is so important, in the middle of a pandemic, someone said, we see you. We want to relieve one part of your stress. And that is so that you will have less debt. This gift was a first in the Greenwood Initiative investments through Bloomberg Philanthropies. As we think about the Greenwood Initiative's goals around creating intergenerational wealth, and we think about the health and wealth connection. We were pledging that more Black doctors would save more Black lives. But as you think about the ripple effect for years to come, the, the individuals that will be treated by future doctors, what do you think is the impact on both the wealth and the health of the individuals that will be treated by them? How do you think this will create a ripple effect? Well. I think that one thing that's going to be necessary to amplify the impact of the gift is to make sure that our students leave us with a higher degree of financial acumen. In other words, they're now going to have an opportunity to invest more, save more, do more. I think on top of the, the reduction in their debt, we need to be attentive to making sure they have the wherewithal to make some good, sound financial decisions early on in their careers. <laughs> I tell this story all the time. When I was at Johns Hopkins, I did a sub-internship in urology, and I took care of a, a telecommunications magnet from Brazil who traveled to Johns Hopkins so that one of our surgeons could remove his prostate cancer and preserve his sexual function, right? He was so appreciative of that surgery, he wrote a multi-million dollar gift to Johns Hopkins. All I'm trying to say is that we need to make sure that we allow our students to have the knowledge to build up some wealth so that in the future, they may be the kind of person who, in gratitude for some act of grace or something else, they can make that kind of gift to one of our institutions. I would say, Ganesha, when you incur $250,000 of debt, 
many times it's not just you incurring the debt, it impacts your entire family. And so when you think about the household in which these students still are engaged, it's going to make a difference. And it definitely will decrease the stress and the burden of their entire family. So I think it is one of those first steps in building some intergenerational and multi-generational wealth. Earlier this summer, studies were released showing that Black babies are three times more likely to die than white babies when looked after by white doctors. Dr. Montgomery Rice, as an OBGYN and fertility specialist, I know that you have a perspective on this issue and really would be interested in hearing what you think the benefit is for Black patients when looked after by Black doctors. Garnisha, the study that you're referring to actually looked at about 1.8 million births in the state of Florida. And it asked the question, if the baby and the doctor are concordance in their race, meaning Black doctor, Black baby, what was the mortality rate? If there was discordance, what was the mortality rate? And when there was discordance, meaning a Black baby and a white doctor, there was actually three times the rate of mortality with the baby. Now, these were pediatricians, okay, which was really shocking to me because I kept thinking, okay, because in the delivery room, there's an OBGYN and there's a pediatrician usually. And then when they looked at if there was a white baby and there was a black doctor, they did not see this increase in mortality. It was a 10 or 15 years of data, but they were shocked by this difference. But part of it is in communication and expectation. Expectation that this baby's life is equally important as the next baby's life, regardless of race or ethnicity. In this country, we are at the level of a third world country when it turns to maternal mortality. And regardless of your economic status, as a Black woman, when you go into that delivery room or have an interaction sometimes with a physician, you are not being heard. The same level of care and consideration is not being extended to you and it results in an untoward outcome. That means that there's a lack of cultural competence, respect, and care that is provided. And it is now being measured in outcomes. We know what we do at our institutions. You treat patients with the utmost of care, and it first begins with listening and communicating, ensuring that they understand their opportunities, and that they understand the risk and that you're hearing their concerns. And their concerns don't always come out as the chief complaint. It is a matter of how you engage them in that exchange to how you get that information. Many of us can go through the algorithm and understand what drug we should prescribe for certain symptoms and lab values. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it is the right prescription for that patient at that time. And that is what we mean by culturally competent care. We instilled this from day one in our students. Thank you, Dr. Rice. Dr. Hildreth has also spoken about this and how overwhelmingly Meharry graduates choose to go into primary care. 
Do you think, Dr. Hildreth, first, that you're finding that your students decide where to specialize and what to specialize in based on financial security? Granisha, every year when students graduate the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, they take a poll or survey of students and ask them various questions. And one of them is, what were the factors that made you decide to choose the specialty that you chose? At the top of the list is personality fit. At the bottom of the list is financial compensation. It was a surprise to many people, but that's really it. So if you recruit someone who has a desire to work in a rural area because it fits their personality, that's what they're gonna choose. What that means is if we wanna put people in rural settings, we have to recruit students who have that mindset, who have that commitment to wanting to serve those communities because of their personalities, their culture, their motivation. So we just believe that we're more successful than maybe some other schools. And I'm sure this is true at Morehouse and the other schools as well, because we attract students who bring that kind of heart and spirit with them to their training. Because it's very clear that while compensation is important, what's more important to students is their sense of commitment to their communities and what level of service they can provide. This idea of this gift, putting students in more agency and choice, what does that mean to you and what you're looking forward to seeing with this group of students as a result of this gift? I will give you a personal example. Somehow, as a person who was raised in a single parent household, who mother worked in a paper factory and rose to be the highest ranking woman in a paper factory in Macon, Georgia. She used to whisper in my ear and my other three sisters' ears at night, whether she was working 73, 3 to 11, 11 to 7, before she would go to bed, all things are possible. You can do anything. And I can guarantee you my mother did not know what subliminal messaging was. But she put that in our brain, and I actually believed it. There's got to be a belief, right, of what's possible for you. When I think about our students and I think about what's possible for them, I want them to have no limitations. I decided to go to medical school. I was in engineering school, and I really thought I was too cute to be an engineer. I said, I looked in the encyclopedia and looked up math, science, and people. And if you look that up, doctor comes up. And I decided I wanted to go to medical school. And I never thought about what the debt would be incurred. I had a full scholarship to medical school. And then I chose to go to Harvard because I wanted to have more choice. That's what we want for our students. We want our students to have choice. And when you are not worried, now I was not worried about debt because probably as my husband would say, because I can't add, but I wasn't worried about debt, right? I want them to go through as they go on their rotations and they're doing surgery and they're doing internal medicine, doing OBGYN, they're doing uh, two weeks of plastic surgery, da, da, da. I want them to see this potpourri and say, I can choose any of it. When you are not worried about debt, you are able to follow your heart's desire. Dr. Montgomery Rice has said it. That's so very important. But I also want the students to understand that this gift, in some ways, is a validation and a confirmation 
that what they've chosen to do, it matters. They matter, the people they care about matter, and that can actually change your perspective in very powerful ways. I just believe they're gonna be much more effective in doing whatever they do because they're gonna have more agency and less stress, and they're gonna feel like what I've chosen has been validated. Imagine you're a student at Meharry where you know that most of you will choose primary care, and you watch as institutions like NYU Medical School gets this huge gift to pay up all of their debt with the hopes that they'll choose primary care. And here are institutions like Morehouse and Meharry where students do it routinely, and yet we have to struggle to even be on the radar with some organizations. So I was just so happy for our students that this is a validation that I matter, the people I care about matter, my institution matters, and I think that's gonna make a huge difference going forward. And Garnisha, I will add to this. So my team gave me a count the other day. Our applications number is up about 20%. And I'm sure Mahari is experiencing the same thing. Now, some people believe it's Dr. Fauci. I don't think so. We're now at, I think, 8,400 applications this year for 100 spots. Yeah, the same. Yeah, so that's, that's great but we can't seed all of them, right? But we want to keep them in the pipeline. So Dr. Hildreth and I will do what we do also, and that is encourage our other institutions that are not historically Black medical colleges to do their part, to live up to their mission that they have stated about their commitment to diversity and inclusion. That's very important. In the spirit of all that we have talked about today, I would ask as we close, in the midst of all of that, what is keeping you hopeful right now? What's keeping me hopeful is watching here in Nashville, for example, the African-American community has taken it quite seriously and have banded together and we're doing things that we need to do to protect each other in our communities. Some of our national leaders took their eye off of this problem and raises the question, maybe all lives don't matter the same after all, even though that's what they're professing. So I'm just very encouraged that we have found a way to support each other. That gives me a lot of hope. I'm also hopeful and encouraged by the fact that our four schools, our consortium, our little <laughs> band of sisters and brothers, I think we've come together and supporting each other through the pandemic, but it's just made the bonds even closer and stronger. I would echo what Dr. Hill just said. I think that we have found a lot of strength in each other. You came to us and we appreciated that you didn't try to fracture us. You made sure that we all four were involved and it only made us stronger. And we have always worked together, but there's clearly a lot more synergy and we are formalizing into a consortium that's I think even gonna be more powerful. I'm also very optimistic though, that there are non-black and brown people who I believe based on what they saw with the social injustices, what they have seen with the ravages of this virus, that they have found their courage to speak without being concerned about the consequence. I never believed that we could tackle racism or some of the structural biases, conscious or unconscious, some of the systemic challenges alone. We can't address all of the challenges related to diversifying the healthcare workforce. It really does require all of the health systems to understand that the people who work in these hospitals ought to resemble the people in the communities that they serve. 
and how that leads to better outcomes. And so I am hopeful because I see people asking questions, desiring to learn and listening, and also not being afraid to admit when they don't know because they want to do better. Thank you both so much for your participation today, but also, and and most importantly, for your continued leadership and commitment to the health outcomes of the Black community and beyond, and to offering all of the wisdom and counsel and guidance that I know that you offer to your students. We really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, Karnisha. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Follow the Data. Many thanks to Garnisha Isidaro, Dr. Valerie Montgomery-Brice, and Dr. James Hildreth for joining us. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to Follow the Data. You can keep up with Morehouse School of Medicine by following at MSMEDU. And you can keep up with the Meharry Medical College by following at Meharry Medical and at James E. K. Hildreth. This episode was created by Devin Alessio, Ivy Lee, Garnisha Isidaro, Roland Kennedy Jr., Amy June, Bibi Nunez, Sarah Washington, and Elliot Popko. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.